Most Americans think 2023 was better than the three years before. According to one poll, the nation's improving healthcare situation probably has a lot to do with it. This was the year the majority of us could really look at COVID in the rear view mirror, but what's on the horizon? At this point, it looks like a compromise is a long ways off, uh, both in terms of, of top line numbers and just policy. Uh, the House hasn't passed their funding bill for uh, the Department of Health and Human Services yet. Our guests are joining us from the nation's capital to break down, explain, and analyze the top healthcare stories they're tracking. Look at what my fellow panelists are talking about, right? Like Nathaniel was talking about a transparency bill that may or may not be able to get through the, the Senate. Um, we're talking about the Republican primary where they're, you know, discussing um, transgender care. I mean, these are very, on one end, we have very uh, polarizing issues that there's no hope of bipartisan compromise on. And then on the other, we have, you know, examples of bipartisan compromise, but they're not the, you know, it's not the wide scale, it's not the Affordable Care Act or repeal or replace or Medicare for all. Like these are very minor in the grand scheme of things. This is Conversations on Healthcare. Well, we've got a great uh, guest uh, list today, and we welcome them to Conversations on Healthcare. They're all distinguished journalists known for insights they bring to reporting. Joyce Frieden oversees MedPage Today's coverage of Washington and health policy. Caitlin Owens is a senior policy reporter for Axios, and Nathaniel Wexel is a healthcare policy reporter for The Hill. Nathaniel, let's start with you. Uh, I don't think this is a, a New Year's wish that you could could have, but we do have for the new year two potential federal government shutdown deadlines in 2024. One in January that includes money needed for the FDA and Veterans Affairs, and the other in February that covers other funding for the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services. I'm wondering, do you see any hopes for a compromise between the Republicans and Democrats to get these bills passed? I mean, at this point, it looks like a compromise is a long ways off. Uh, both in terms of, of top line numbers and just policy. Uh, the House hasn't passed their funding bill for uh, the Department of Health and Human Services yet. Uh, they, they keep trying, but it keeps getting either delayed or pulled because of disagreements among moderate Republicans and conservative Republicans. Uh, you get disagreements about funding levels, disagreements about abortion, uh, disagreements about lots of unrelated issues that come uh, into play. So it seems like a compromise is a long ways off. I wouldn't say never, but, you know, it's going to be a rough couple of weeks when we get back. Well, Nathaniel, a bipartisan group in the House did pass a significant health care package, the Lower Costs, More Transparency Act. Uh, but its fate in the Senate, perhaps for the reasons you've just outlined, uh, is uncertain. What's in this bill and, and what are the what are the points of contention? Yeah, I mean, this bill passed pretty overwhelmingly in the House. Uh, it's really it's a, it's a transparency bill, I'd say, is the one of the big issues. It, it just and it makes it clear uh, it, the other issue, site neutral payments, it equalizes payments uh, on medical sites. So that's the, the biggest point of contention among hospitals is that it equalizes payments on outpatient departments. So hospitals are clearly lobbying hard against it. They like some of the other transparency requirements, 
but uh, it divided Democrats in the House because some Democrats felt it didn't go far enough in terms of transparency, uh, like there wasn't enough information on private equity ownership issues. Uh, but it was, you know, as we said, it's a pretty bipartisan bill. So, you know, it could do well in the Senate. It, it sets the House up as a strong negotiating point for when it does get to the Senate. It's not clear if all of those provisions will be included in whatever the final version is, and they're sort of looking likely as an add-on to a year-end bill come, well, not the year-end, but what would be a year-end bill on January 19th. Uh, so it, these provisions, whatever they are, could likely be on that, and the House is in a good position to negotiate sort of concessions from the Senate or, you know, just to sort of make a Senate bill look closer to a House version. Uh, but I guess we'll see. Mm-hmm. And Joyce, the presidential campaign season is is underway. We'll kick into high gear very soon. I think Iowa's four or five weeks out. Uh, you recently wrote about the Republican candidates who debated and uh, they focused in on transgender care and fentanyl policy. I'm wondering if you could give our listeners an overview of their positions and what they're trying to achieve. Um, sure, Mark. Yeah, the uh, transgender care really was quite a divisive issue. The moderator uh, very aggressively confronted Chris Christie about um, his position that transgender surgery mm-hmm. is a parental rights issue, that, that parents should have a, a say in whether to allow this for their children. And she asked if he was out of, he thought he was out of step with the Republicans. And he stood his ground. He said, no, I'm not. Republicans believe in less government, not more. Um, We're out there saying we should empower parents in education and that they should be able to teach kids what they believe in. And yet we want to take other parental rights away. Um, He personally said he thought transgender transition surgery is very dangerous, uh, but that's my opinion as a parent, he said, and I get to decide. Uh, Ron DeSantis, on the other hand, totally disagreed and said, as a parent, you don't have the right to abuse your kids. Um, And he called it mutilation of minors. That earned him a rebuke from the Endocrine Society, which said that what DeSantis said contradicted mainstream medical practice. And then Nikki Haley chimed in and she kind of use this as an opportunity not only to talk about what she had done in this area as a South Carolina governor, but also to say that biological boys shouldn't be playing in girls sports and make other um, and and or use girls bathrooms. And then uh, Vivek Ramaswamy said that transgenderism is a mental health disorder. Um, and these procedures shouldn't be done on minors. So they all had slightly different opinions. Um, and then when they talked about fentanyl, similarly, they um, differed on the causes and the solutions. DeSantis was focused on the drug cartels and what to do about that. And he was emphasizing building a wall across the southern border, whereas ha- uh, Nikki Haley was talking about China and the fact that fentanyl was coming from there. And she said, we need to end trade relations with China and and that they are immediately will put a stop to it because they need us. And uh, Ramaswamy 
again, focused on the mental health issue and said um, the, the mental health epidemic that's raging here is the cause of a lot of this problem. So again, very, very different views on these mm -hmm. topics. Absolutely. And Caitlin, let me turn to you. You wrote a story with a provocative headline, uh, I thought provocative, uh, that said the era of major U.S. health reform is over. Uh, and I, I call it provocative because the Times Magazine poll uh, found that over 70 percent of Americans feel failed by the health care system. Do you think there's really no hope for policy change, especially with this percentage of the country unhappy with things as they are now? I think that's the case in the short term, um, you know, short to medium term. I'm mean, just, you know, look at what my fellow panelists are talking about, right? Like Nathaniel was talking about a transparency bill that may or may not be able to get through the, the Senate. Um, we're talking about the Republican primary where they're, you know, discussing um, transgender care. I mean, these are very, on one end, we have very uh, polarizing issues that there's no hope of bipartisan compromise on. And then on the other, we have, you know, examples of bipartisan compromise, but they're not the, you know, it's not the wide scale, it's not the Affordable Care Act or repeal or replace or Medicare for all. Like these are very minor in the grand scheme of things, changes to the system. Um, so the point of my piece was mostly that our political system is so gridlocked today that to your point, despite the challenges that the country faces with healthcare, despite voters' dissatisfaction with the system, um, the political system does not allow for huge change right now. Um, I think that the that will eventually change if and when voters become even more dissatisfied with the system. Um, but for now, I'm, it's hard to see bridges to big reforms based on the gridlock in Washington. Well, that's such a such a good uh, observation, Nathaniel. Uh, we don't want to leave out former President Donald Trump, though he didn't attend the debates, but he's leading in the polls, both in the Republican primary and on the one-on-one -on -one with uh, uh, President uh, Biden. Um, but let's let's dive into his health care ideas. He, he wants to repeal and replace the Affordable Care Act. He says it's too expensive. And yet we're seeing surveys that show it's popular uh, and Americans want to keep it. Uh, he's against cuts to Medicare and Social Security, uh, and yet some of the Republican opponents uh, support uh, reductions, and he wants to institutionalize those who are homeless situations. I'm wondering how these ideas are playing on Capitol Hill in any sense of what else he could roll out soon. Uh, I mean, anytime you try to talk uh, about Donald Trump to congressional Republicans, you're either going to you know, get praise for whatever his ideas are, or they they haven't seen the tweet, or they haven't seen you know whatever the latest policy proposal. I haven't, so, haven't read the full. But yeah, that's right. <laughs> right. So you know, a lot of what he talks about, they sort of they don't want to address on Capitol Hill. Maybe up until they're forced to reckon with it when or if he's back in the Oval Office. Uh, you know, like repeal and replace. It, didn't work last time. Trump clearly hasn't given up on it. Uh, Republicans don't, don't really want to talk about it because, as you said, it's so popular, but they may have to if he's back in and wins a trifecta in the House and Senate and he's in the White House and he says, we're going to repeal and replace and try again. Uh, you know, then they're going to have to deal with it. But, you know, it's sort of the 
the last Trump presidency you saw, he talked a big game on a lot of things. He wanted to, uh, you know, he talked a big game on pharma about lowering prescription drug prices. Nothing really came of his policies. One was blocked by a court. Biden has tried to repeal some others that weren't so popular. So, you know, Trump talks a lot. It sort of remains to be seen if what he says in terms of his like, you know, hard healthcare policy will will come to be. Well, Caitlin, that's a good opportunity for us to also take a look at President Biden's agenda. Uh, I'll list just uh, a couple of them. His aides are looking at providing access to Obamacare coverage in those 10 remaining states that have not expanded Medicaid. Uh, And he's looking, I understand, at a renewed push for a public option, which would create a government-run health care plan that could compete for customers with private insurance companies. What does your reporting tell you about these ideas and how they're being received? So from what we know so far of what President Biden will be running on, um, which we're still waiting for a lot of detail uh, and confirmation, you know, public confirmation, basically it can be summed up as a finish the job agenda. Um, All of these things, finishing or finding, you know, filling the coverage gap with Medicaid expansion, making enhanced affordable care act subsidies permanent, potentially a public option, potentially expanding um, the Medicare drug pricing negotiations law. All of this stuff is, is, is none of it are new ideas that Biden has not talked about before, at least so far from what we're seeing. Um, it's it, it's agenda items that he was not able to accomplish in his first term. Um, or that he was on a temporary basement for ex- uh, temporary basis, uh, for example, the subsidies. Um, right now, he's talking about making those permanent. Um, and so, you know, I think in some respects, the finish the job agenda. Um, you know, as we were talking about earlier, it's not it's not an entirely new healthcare plan. It's not Medicare for all. Um, but as you know, defenders and supporters of Biden will point out. If Biden is able to do these policies, that will go a long way towards achieving Democrats' goal of universal coverage, which has been a decades-long goal. Um, And we're just kind of at the point where some modifications here and there um, can really shrink the remaining population that does not have access to affordable health insurance. I wonder if I can Finish the job agenda is a good sounding phrase. (laughs) (laughs) I'm wondering uh, how the three of you view where healthcare stands in the priority list for Americans at this point? Is it one, two, three, four? Where, where do you see it on the list? Caitlin? Or, cost of healthcare is pardon? a big issue yeah. among a lot of people. Uh, I don't know, you know, uh, KFF has done a lot of polling on this and, mm-hmm. uh, you know, you sort of seen that the cost of healthcare is generally like number two uh, behind concerns about inflation. But if you want to go into the specifics and talk about, you know, insurance coverage or, or things like that, it might be a little lower down, but, you know, people care about how much they're paying for healthcare. Well, something that I've thought about and I haven't seen it teased out, that doesn't mean it doesn't exist. Um, but yeah, inflation is number one. Healthcare concerns are under that, according to recent polling that I think we've all seen. Um, but with inflation, I mean, obviously, healthcare costs are part of that. Um, and so I think that just from other reporting I've seen that as um, cost of housing, other, you know, everyday living items go up. I mean, just the chunk of the 
there's less and less money in the family budget and healthcare costs are already expensive for families. Mm -hmm. um, so to me, it feels hard to completely extract healthcare spending just from the concerns about inflation in general. Well, and I, I think too, the premiums are, are going up and people are noticing it as a bigger bite out of their paycheck right. than mm -hmm. they previously yes. were. That's Absolutely. a great, great observation. Joyce, uh, the administration recently announced it had the authority to march in and break the patents of drugs developed using taxpayer money if the administration considers them to be ex um, too expensive. And I'm wondering if you could explain how this would work and what the drug makers are, are saying. Sure. Well, it's happened a few weeks ago, and it has to do with a provision of an old law called the BAYH, that's B-A-Y-H after Birch Bayh, Dole Act of 1980. And that gave the government the authority under certain circumstances to take control of a drug patent and license it to another company if the drug was developed with government support. And so the Biden administration wanted, wants to use this idea as leverage when drug companies try to put too high a price on a drug. And so it issued a, like a draft framework for how they were gonna use these rights. And according to that guidance, um, the march in actions will have to meet certain criteria, um, such as the drug being required for public use and that um, the uh, regulatory requirements weren't satisfied by the the contractor or the licensees. Um, and on a related note, they're, they're really harping on this fair pricing issue. And they said last week that they were making fair pricing a standard part of contract negotiations for medical products that were developed with federal government support. So they've done this so far in four contracts for Project NextGen, which is a $5 billion project uh, from the government to develop the next generation of COVID-19 vaccines and treatments. And the contracts state that if the product's commercialized, its list price in the United States will be equal to or less than its retail price in comparable global markets. Obviously, pharmaceutical companies are not <laughs> happy with March-in rights. Yeah. Uh, spokeswoman for them, Sarah Ryan, uh, said that if the government is allowed to take away patent protections at any time, there isn't any incentive for uh, biopharmaceutical bio companies to collaborate with the government. Joyce, remind me about the 10 drugs that they're negotiating. How, how is that proceeding? Uh, um, they, uh, yeah, they've issued the list of the 10 drugs that they're negotiating. And my understanding is that it's now, they're currently undergoing a review uh, of those drugs. And I, I think we'll know more next year. <laughs> Remarkable. It's going back that far to that old aloft as they take advantage of it. Thanks for that little piece of history. And Nathaniel, let's turn to artificial intelligence as the conversation often does these days. You reported that AI can help combat health misinformation, according to the leader of the White House Cancer Research Initiative. Tell us about this. Yeah, so, you know, her, as she said, you know, this is a, you know, this, when asked about, you know, the role of AI or what could help combat disinformation, she said, you know, this could be a surprising answer, but AI, uh, so long as the AI systems are developed with that, this, the, the appropriate safeguards to make sure that they take into account uh, 
you know, the, the inherent systems of, uh, how disinformation is spread, uh, right now and sort of what the accurate information is, but, you know, it is sort of surprising that you think AI can really be used to spread disinformation rather than, uh, you know, being set up with appropriate safeguards to, to help stop it. Well, it's got all those concerns about hallucinations and other things uh, that are part and parcel of, of the opportunity that AI could uh, present to us. But we'll certainly will be an area that we will be keeping an eye on. And I know the three of you will. Joyce, I want to move to uh, something you've written about called the and something that is, doesn't roll off the tongue easily, the trusted exchange network and common agreement. Uh, and the, the news on that front, and I'm wondering if you could explain that concept to our listeners and uh, what it might mean for the average American. Sure, yeah, we, we like to call it TEFCA, which is a little easier than <laughs> Trusted Exchange Framework and Common Agreement. Um, in the very simplest terms, it's a network that the federal government is building to make it easier for doctors' offices and hospitals to exchange patient information. So, for example, it'll make it easier if, if you're in D.C. and there's a specialist in California that you want to uh, advise on your case, it will help that specialist uh, get your electronic health record more easily. Um, and what happened last Tuesday, there were five health IT companies who had all met the technical criteria to become part of the network. So they signed an agreement during a big ceremony at Health and Human Services headquarters. And then the first uh, transactions started a few hours later. Um, Health and Human Services Secretary Becerra said that he said, I feel like we're watching the Big Bang occur in 2023. So he was saying it was a really big deal. One thing I should add that I've been interested in, what these companies don't have is a unique patient identifier for each patient. Um, a patient, you know, combination numbers and letters or some kind of ID that would make it easier for these for the network to know that it was the correct patient's whose information was being exchanged. And the reason they don't have it, Congress has actually outlawed its use of an identifier. And so it would take another act of Congress to allow for it. So I asked Mickey Tripathi, who's the head of the Office of the National Coordinator for Health IT about it. And he said that it'd be nice to have such an identifier, but it wasn't absolutely necessary and companies have figured out a way to work around it. That's exactly right, though. On the ground in healthcare, we can say it's pretty complicated to make sure that you have 100% perfection, which is the only acceptable way to do it. Um, Caitlin, we know the Biden administration has been very aggressive about going after corporate power, and you're reporting that they're turning their eyes to healthcare consolidation. Uh, certainly, we are seeing lots of pop-up references to the issues of private equity and hospital ownership and health systems. But how, how big a problem uh, does the administration see this as, and how are they proposing to tackle it? Well, you know, let me just start by saying when I started this year looking at my, I guess, healthcare bingo card, I didn't have bipartisan attention um, on consolidation and, you know, anti competitive business practices on it. Um, so that's been kind of something a little surprising to me just to kind of look at where we were a year ago to where we are now. Um, so, yes, the Biden administration is 
signaling that it's very serious about this. Um, the FTC is looking into PBM consolidation, which is pharmacy benefit managers, which are part of the drug supply chain. Um, it's signaling that it's going to be um, more strict in, about scrutinizing healthcare company mergers, which could really affect hospital mergers. Um, and then on the Hill, we're seeing a ton. I mean, this year has been there's been almost every major healthcare committee has had some kind of hearing on consolidation and anti-competitive business practices that are a result of that consolidation, um, which is something we haven't seen in the past. And I think that's really reflective of the fact of just how much more consolidated the industry has become. Um, you know, I, the, more than half of physicians are now owned by someone else. Um or I guess it's around half of the physicians are now owned by someone else and 10% alone are owned by Optum, which is a branch of United Healthcare. So I think that as the system is getting um, more and more consolidated, there's less opportunity for these companies to compete against each other for pricing, which is the whole um, way that the US healthcare system is designed to control prices. Um, so I think that that's getting a lot more political scrutiny just to bring it back full circle because of the, that cost of healthcare um, that Americans are so concerned about and feeling so acutely. You know, a, a final question to all three of you, and we won't ask you to make political predictions, but uh, what do you think the next 12 months look like and in terms of health policy? Uh, certainly the upcoming Supreme Court decision on abortion pill access is going to make news. Uh, what, what do you see out in your crystal ball as you look over the next 12 months? Obviously, a, a national election coming up, so lots of transformation. And I also know that uh, going back and looking at everyone's predictions about the stock market and all sorts of things last year, everybody got it wrong. So, uh, <laughs> uh, <laughs> but we're always fascinated with what what uh, what might be. What's on your minds? Well, um, I'll start and say that, you know, you mentioned the Supreme Court decision. Uh, that's going to be really interesting um, because obviously the, the question in front of them is whether the FDA acted within the law when it approved um, mifepristone, which is one of the two drugs taken in combination to achieve and, and, a medication. And approved abortion. it like 23 years ago, right? Right, exactly. Yeah. And But the thing is that if the court decides uh, that indeed it wasn't approved um, legally, then it just opens up this this whole can of worms for any other drugs that the FDA approved. So it's it's much more monumental even than just on the abortion front. So you know I think that's going to be a very interesting. Um, and a lot of the stuff we talked about, more action to rein in pharmacy benefit management companies. I think you're going to see. Um, and, and the thing they talked about in the debate about trying to, harder to stop importation of fentanyl and illicit drugs, and also um, the uh, AI, you mentioned uh, artificial intelligence. Um, the health IT folks just last week released some regulations on how to make that more transparent. So doctors' offices and hospitals will be trying to untangle that. Were, were those... Uh in addition to the president's executive order or a, a, a part of- uh, Part and parcel. Part, part and parcel, yeah, right. great. I think Caitlin sort of alluded to it earlier is that there's gonna be a lot of nibbling around the edges uh, in terms of like healthcare reform. So there's gonna be maybe some transparency, some uh, targeting of PBMs, nothing major, 
uh, and then we're sort of going to come into campaign season. But I think where things are going to be interesting is you're going to look at the courts, you're going to look at the states, you're going to look at, you know, abortion coming from the Supreme Court, abortion ballot measures in the states, uh, clarity or not clarity on state medical exemptions, as we just saw in Texas. Uh, I think, you know, that might be sort of where the, the biggest health policy issues are going to be next year. And, and, and those might be issues that royal the, uh, the presidential election as well, I assume. I, I would, especially if they come, you know, June, mm-hmm. July, right in the middle of campaign season. That's mm-hmm. right. I'm uh, betting that the abortion pill access is the one that will really capture the news, uh, just given the impact across every single state in the country and really the last remaining option for women. So we'll see how that plays out, certainly. And just one last thought. Uh, Democrats really think that abortion and health care and defending the Affordable Care Act, that these are really strong issues for them. So even in the context of all of this, I would expect to hear, especially as the campaign ramps up, I would expect a lot of health care talk going into 2024. But as Nathaniel was saying, I, I mean, how things play out, a lot of it is up to the courts. Any That's last right. comments from any of you as the year draws to a close? Take a break now. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. You're probably going to be busy. Absolutely. Well, certainly in the uh, in the world of community health centers, uh, we're still hoping that things advance in terms of protecting community health centers, the National Health Service Corps, Teaching Health Center Act, and many other things that we're keeping an eye on that affect certainly the lowest income, the most uninsured, and the most Medicaid people in the country. So we'll be keeping an eye on that, and we may have more questions for you about those issues in the future as well. But thank you all for joining us. We'll be reading and learning from your reporting in the year ahead. And thank you to our audience for being with us. Be sure to go online to chcradio.com, sign up for our updates, and share your thoughts and comments about this program. Happy holidays to all. Best wishes for a terrific new year. Thank you all for joining us. Thank you. Thanks for the work you do. Yeah, absolutely. Very informative. This copyrighted program is produced by Conversations on Healthcare and cannot be reproduced or retransmitted in whole or in part without the express written consent from Community Health Center, Inc. The views expressed by guests are their own and they do not necessarily reflect the opinion of Conversations on Healthcare or its affiliated entities.